Uh, good to see you at public meetings. I'm glad that you're able to continue to come to public meetings uh, into the depths of second semester. Uh, can I encourage you, as you're able to, to uh, keep regularly attending public meetings, even when sort of the busyness and sometimes the stress of the semester starts to kick in? So it's good to see you. Uh, this is the second, uh, as John has said, of our third uh, weeks looking at what it means to love the marginalised and the vulnerable. So what I want to do uh, briefly is give you an outline, which you may choose to um, fill in on the blank piece of paper that you were given on the way in. Today what I'd like to do is look at three or four, depending upon time, uh, particular passages uh, in the Bible that I think help us understand what it means for us as individuals to love the marginalised and the vulnerable. The passages that we're going to be looking at is this particular passage in Luke, uh, then a passage from James 2, a passage in Acts 4. Um, if I can get through those three, I'll be happy. If we get to 1 Peter, that'd be great. But if not, I'm just going to push that into next week's talk. Um, and then at the end, I want to draw some conclusions from those three passages. So that's the plan. How about I pray? Ask that God might help us. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we ask, please, you would help us to rightly understand it today. Father, we ask, please, that we might be uh, men and women who are people who do not just hear your word and go away unchanged, but rather, Father, that your spirit, that he might work in us and that we might be able to apply the word that we hear to our hearts and our lives, that our lives would bring glory to Jesus by living differently in accordance and obedience with your word. And so we ask these things in your name. Amen. Just as a complete aside, uh, one of the advantages of being a Christian is you get to say Amen at the end of prayers. I don't know if you've noticed this. My observation of being in church is the Amens tend to get quieter and quieter and quieter year on year on year. Eventually, it'll just sort of be a little... <laughs> I tend to say Amen sometimes more loudly than everybody else because actually I am in agreement with what's been said. So my personal wisdom is next time you're in church, if you agree with what's said, say Amen. 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 Great, that, that, great, that, okay, that. So next week, when I pray at the beginning of the talk, <laughs> look, we've all got our own little hobby horses and occasionally they come out and we take them for a little ride around and then we put them back in the stable and so that one's... <laughs> don't need to do that one for another couple of years. Uh, one of the things I suggested last week was under this sort of area of how we love those who are marginalised and vulnerable, I uh, suggested three broad things. Firstly, uh, we should rightly recognise that those who are marginalised and vulnerable are first and foremost, as we think about what it means to be marginalised and vulnerable those who are the spiritually marginalised and vulnerable, those who are outside the kingdom of God, those who are, as the Bible would say, dead in their sins and transgressions. What is required of them, what is required for them, actually, is the great news of the gospel, that the Jesus came and died and rose again and pays the penalty for their sin, the great offer of forgiveness and restoration is there made to them and that the entry into the kingdom of God is an offer of inclusion, such and made to all people, such that they would no longer be marginalised out of relationship with God. And so as such, our responsibility, as those who have been included in that, is to care for them by bringing them this great message of hope and forgiveness that Jesus offers. Secondly, I suggested that we should rightly recognise that there will be those in our society who live on the margins, this will take many different forms. If our heart is directed after God's heart, then our lives should reflect this in our love and care for them. Last week, we looked at particularly the character of God and how this shapes the law he gave to the nation of Israel, how one of the expectations would be this great year of jubilee, the year of the Lord's favour, 
that Jesus, in the passage in Luke 4, stands up and says, today, this Scripture, this Old Testament, is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the one who ushers in this great year of Jubilee, this great year of the Lord's favour, in offering forgiveness and hope. If we, those who have been included in that by God's grace, if our heart is to be rightly orientated after God's, and if we are to live like God, then we should not only be more able to see those in our society who live on the margins, but our actions should reflect our love and care for them. And that's really what I want to talk about today in this topic of who is my neighbour. Thirdly, I suggest that we should rightly recognise there is an appropriate manner for the Christian community as gathered together as believers, the local church and then the gathering of churches, the denomination, to behave within the community and towards the community and within the group of church. And we're going to look at that next week. So firstly, the story that Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan from Luke 10. Uh, Hopefully you've got the passage open in front of you. Uh, I've got it in two slides, so it's there on the screen, but it'd be really good if you follow along with it. Uh, The lawyer, as we've seen, comes to Jesus seeking to answer this question of inheriting eternal life. Uh, a, A question that was actually fairly familiar to most Jews, who if you work through the Old Testament, indicates that life is possible beyond just this physical existence. The man correctly identifies what is stated within the law. Uh, As you see there in verse uh, 26, uh, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself, coming out of the Old Testament law stated then or uh, reflecting what's been said in the book of Deuteronomy. The lawyer correctly identifies not only what is stated, but I think is then seeking confirmation that he has been obedient towards the law thus creating an expectation that if he's fulfilled the law, he will then inherit eternal life. He will be justified before God. In some senses, the question behind the question that the lawyer is asking is, have I rightly understood who my neighbour is? Of all the people who I've tried to love, are they my neighbour? Have I loved them enough? And so Jesus tells this story about what it means not only to love God, but more particularly what it means to rightly understand who your neighbour is. We we don't quite feel it in today's culture when we read the story a couple of thousand years later, but the story that Jesus tells in its day would have been quite shocking and somewhat unpredictable. See, interestingly, those who were listening to the story, the crowd, as Jesus tells the story, I suspect, like we do when we hear stories, we start to sort of see where the story's going to go. We, We try and create the ending for ourselves. If the crowd were to do this on this day, I think they would have expected different people to have helped the man who was beaten by robbers. And the person who they probably least expected to help this beaten man, the Samaritan, ends up helping him. One of the reasons for that, I think, in the crowd's mind is, well, it's twofold. Firstly, for some, they would have thought that the priests and the Levites were actually the good people. Now, when I was in Sunday school, I'm very thankful that my parents raised me as a Christian. They were Christian parents and took me to Sunday school and we were taught lots of Bible stories. Uh, If you're a Sunday school teacher, can I encourage you to keep advocating the teaching of Bible stories? And in case of this one, we would be taught this passage a number of different times. And sometimes our Sunday school teachers would get us to act it out. Those of us who were sort of We thought we were good Christians. We were actually just moralists, I think, at that point. Uh, We never really wanted to play the bad guys in the story. We always wanted to be the good people in the story. So we would like to play Jesus or the disciples. Jesus, the disciples, okay? We never really wanted to play the Pharisees. 
or the teachers of the law, because we thought they were the bad guys. See, when you're young and, you know, good guys, bad guys. You want to try and be on the side of the good, okay? We would sometimes invite uh, our friends who maybe didn't quite understand the stories. You, you'd be the, the, the Pharisee. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's a, I've repented of that now. See, in some cases, sometimes when we read this story, we think the Levites and the priests, well, they're the bad guys. Of course, they're going to walk away on the, walk on the other side of the road. But to the crowd, no, actually, the Levites and the priests, and in some cases, the teachers of the law, they were the upright people of society. They were the good people of society. They were the ones who worked really hard to keep the law of God. The bad people, if you have to use the category, is almost the tax collectors, actually. They were the ones who, under Roman law, would kept sort of fleecing the people for money, not only for the Romans, but also for themselves. Although some in the crowd would have rightly understood the action of the priest and the Levite to walk on the other side of the road. See, the Levites were one of the tribes in Israel. We looked at this last week. Remember, they were given no allotment of land. And from the Levites, the priests were given. Now, you could be a Levite and not be a priest. But if you were to be a priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. Okay? So for some in the crowd, the fact that the priest and the Levite walk on the other side, the crowd would have gone, those who are maybe in the the know will go, well, of course, because the Old Testament teaches that if you come across a dead body, if you touch the dead body, you are now ceremonially unclean. For the Levite and particularly the priest, that would have been a big no-no because there was a whole lot of, there was a process of ceremonial cleansing that you needed to do, exclusion often from the temple of God for a certain period of time, maybe up to a week. So for some in the crowd, the thought that the priest and the Levite wouldn't help was sort of considered normal, but for others it was a bit unexpected. But the Samaritan, the group of people who you would least expect to help is the one who goes to offer aid. And the aid that the Samaritan offers is far more than just a token handout. He goes and binds the man's wounds, takes him to an inn to recover, and then fully covers whatever the cost will be for the man to recover. Now, one of the reasons why Jesus tells this story, um, one of the reasons why this is such a shocking story, is it actually does expose the deep racist and ethnic divide that was felt between the Jews and the Samaritans. For the Samaritans, in the mind of the Jews, were considered to be half-castes, to be non-people, because of the history and the Assyrian invasion of the ten northern tribes. But in this case, in Jesus' story, it's the Samaritan who goes to the aid of the man beaten by robbers. The aid that is offered is a full and complete restorative action. He doesn't just walk over to the man and go, oh, you're in a really bad way, I'll leave a note. Came across this guy, he still seems to be breathing, he probably needs some medical assistance. And I'll go on my... Nor does he say, you're looking a really bad way, I'll tell you what, I'll leave you some money. I assume that'll help. Nor does when he gets to the next village say, by the way, there's a guy on the road, can you send somebody, like like an ambulance chariot, sort of like they're just... No, no, the man actually, at great personal cost, in an act of genuine self-sacrifice, in this case we see motivated by compassion, goes and helps this particular individual. Uh, Notice the extent, verse 34, binds up his wounds, pours on oil and wine, sets him on his own animal, brings him to an inn and cares for him. He actually takes responsibility for this beaten man. And then the next day says to the innkeeper, whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. It's almost just like handing over your credit card, which has got no credit limit on it. Go for it, whatever it costs. I'll make good on it when I come back. And the Samaritan does this 
irrespective of cultural boundaries and with no expectation of mutual benefit. The Samaritan's not in it to make a buck. You're not going to sort of charge him against his private health cover twice what it actually cost. No, he's in it for no expectation of mutual benefit. So what is it that we learn from this particular story? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, the underlying principle here is be merciful to people. Just as God has acted mercifully to people, so we are to do likewise, particularly when the situation that they're in is one which almost demands mercy. And I think this will often be a response to a rightly orientated feeling of compassion that we have towards others. One of the things that we will start to find as we mature as Christians is, as God works in our heart through His Spirit and the Word, our hearts, our actions, our attitudes will become more rightly orientated towards Him. So we should expect that God who is the God of compassion, as He does that work in our hearts, we should not be surprised if we start to feel more compassionate for those who are the marginalised and the vulnerable. We shouldn't be surprised actually that we should start to feel more merciful and then hopefully that will work it out in greater acts of mercy. Here, I think particularly the notion of Christian conscience can be important. If you see someone or someone in a particular situation, and if within you there rises a genuine feeling of compassion, assuming your conscience is rightly orientated, I think you should work out how to act on that feeling. Not acting on that feeling with the ensuing feeling of guilt, maybe, not always, but maybe and probably is God correcting you. That's what the Christian conscience, when rightly orientated, does. It holds us to account for our actions or inactions. Secondly, as we reflect on the parable, the expression of mercy will be directed towards those in genuine need. So I guess in answer to the sort of a metaphorical question as we journey through life, on the road of life, and we see many by the side of the road, how many should we help? I take it the answer should be all of them. See, the attitude towards those who are marginalised and vulnerable should be, I should try and help all of them. I take it this is acting after God's heart, to show compassion, to act mercifully to all people. This means that our assistance will extend not just to those who we know, not just to those who are, if you like, in our tribe, it should not be constrained by that. It should, should know no bounds. It should know no preferences. Thirdly, the offer of assistance, I think, will be different in different situations, but will often and invariably and rightly come at great personal cost to us. In some cases, and often in many cases, that may involve a financial cost. But I think sometimes in determining how to best meet the needs of others, what is often required is a relationship. That's not a financial cost, that's an emotional cost, a relational cost. See, notice what we see here in the story of the Good Samaritan. He's willing to commit for the long haul. He doesn't just bind up the man's wounds by the side of the road and say, you'll be okay, I'm going to go on my journey. He binds up the man's wounds, puts him on a donkey, takes him to an inn. But again, notice the Samaritan has some constraint. He can't stay at the inn and care for the man. But he's in for the long haul. He says, whatever it costs, when I return, I will cover it. But he's still bound by some constraint, I take it. Which means our offer 
to help people will be different for different people based on their circumstances, based on what they need, and will also be constrained on what we are actually able to offer. There will be certain situations where we, given our limitations, because friends, we all have limits, we're all constrained because we are not God. Yet God is unlimited. See, God can show unlimited compassion and unlimited mercy. Yet we are constrained, which means we might not be able to meet the immediate need. We might not be able to meet the full financial need. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do something. We may actually be able to engage others or refer people to others such that full help can then be given. Finally, it's worth remembering that I think sometimes we confuse the question of attitude how willing am I to help, with a question of means. How able am I to help? I think we need to keep working this out individually and we need to be mindful that too often we don't dismiss the offer of help by saying, I can't help, which is actually a means question, because we're too embarrassed to say, I don't want to help, which is a question of attitude. Consider now our second passage in James 2. Uh, James chapter 2, if you've got it open in front of you, uh, first four verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here on view, James is reminding his hearers, which, brothers and sisters, is us today, not to show partiality, not to favour some over others, especially in the context of this case of congregational life. Is this not what our society does? Does not our society show favour? Does not it show partiality? Do we not do this also? We also often make distinctions between individuals. We consider some more important than others. We would preference hanging out with some rather than others, often based purely on outward appearance. The question for us as we read this passage is, is this how you behave? Do you show partiality? Who would you rather spend time with? The popular group or the less popular group? Let's say this Sunday someone comes into your church wearing a sort of, a, you know, a, a certain attire which is far more shabby than what your church is normally used to. Will you judge them based on their outward appearances? Will you extend the hand of welcome to them and go and speak to them and give up some of your time with your friends or the group that you normally sit with or the seat in which you normally sit in church? What will your response be? One of the things that I think James is trying to show us here is that to love the vulnerable and the marginalised will not just mean perhaps giving up some of our financial means, but it will mean giving up some of our social capital. Are you prepared to associate with those on the margins? Not just to give of time, your time, but also because others will see you doing that. And they might, you know what, they might judge you for that. They might think less of you for doing that. In some senses, the giving up of our social capital might also be prior to the giving of our financial resources. Who are you prepared to be seen with? Knowing what you know of the character of God and what he's done for you in Jesus. 
the complete perfect assurance of inclusion for all eternity. See, our society creates rules and expectations, many of them often unwritten, that are inconsistent, I think, with how God would actually have us live with one another. Are we prepared as believers to act counterculturally, to be prepared to spend time with people whom society often moves to the margins? Secondly, if you go on and read a little bit later on in the same chapter of James, verses 14 to 17, we see James saying, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now if you've read ahead and you've noticed this language of justification, that it says you see there a person is justified by his works, the sort of the quick answer is James is using the word and the language of justification differently to the way in which Paul uses it in say Romans. Um, If you're going to our senior Bible study groups, we should be looking at that. Either you did it this week or you'll do it next week. If you're still confused, come and have a conversation with me about it. In between verses 1 to 4 and verses 14 to 17, you'll notice James is actually reflecting back on what it means to love your neighbour. In this case, in these latter verses, verses 14 to 17, James, I think, helps us see that our faith ought to issue in good works for the sake of others. There ought to be a consistency between faith and actions. Now, in this case, I think the context is concerning the obedience of the command to love the neighbour and the giving of financial assistance to those who are without basic daily needs. It may be more narrowly directed in verse 15 to the brother or sister, the fellow believer within your congregational setting, but the principle I think that James is talking about remains the same. You have faith, You believe in the God who shows mercy to the marginalised and the vulnerable. How is this outworking in your life? The expectation is that it will be seen in action. Let's turn over to our third passage, Acts 4, verse 32 to 37. Uh, We see here an example of what it was like in the early church. Uh, Verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Notice what goes on here. Some of the individuals give up what is theirs that others within the community will not be in need. That was the practice. It was distributed by the apostles, which meant, I take it, that there was some wisdom and discernment as to how the funds that had been provided for by some in the congregation, the selling of land and houses, how was that to be distributed? There was a certain weighing of where the need was and where that would go, and that was placed given the responsibility of the apostles. Note here that I don't think it's saying that everyone is to have exactly the same. What I don't think is on view is the apostles commanding everybody to sell everything they have, put it all in one big bucket, if you like, or one big pot, and then evenly distribute it. There will be some in the congregation in this case and in the early church who have more than others. But notice what is not to be the case. There should be none who are in need I take it in this case, 
There are to be none who are in need. Not some are without Wi-Fi. See, Wi-Fi is not a need, remember? No, it's not. It's not a basic daily need. You, know, you, you seriously think it's a need, don't you? Yeah. Your basic daily needs, clothing, food, and shelter. That's the pattern that's going on in Acts 4. There was an assurance almost that those in the congregation would not be without those basic daily necessities of life. And so what it meant was some gave from their surplus that there would be none in need. What might that look like for us in our life? Do you have surplus beyond your basic daily needs? Are there those maybe in particularly your church who you know are in need? Are there those whom your conscience is raising up within you this great sense and feeling of compassion who you see in the world who are in need? Have you been praying for those people in need? Well, maybe you're the answer to your own prayers. Maybe you need to give of your surplus beyond your basic daily needs. And you might say, well, at the moment, I'm not really able to do that. And I'm saying God is not interested in the quantum of your giving. It might be $10 now, one off. It might be $10,000 every year in 10 years' time. God is interested first in the attitude and second, that you follow through with action. So some reflections on what this might look like practically before we then come to conclude. I don't think we'll get to 1 Peter, we'll just push that into next week's talk. I think firstly, we need to be more aware of the needs of those who are vulnerable. Like practically, we actually need to be more mindful of this. But the second question then I think is, how can I best help? I think from a wisdom point of view, and just as I've sort of lived life and read some books and things like that, I think there's a number of different ways that this can be worked out. First and foremost, I think prayer. Are you praying for those who are marginalised and vulnerable? Secondly, and I think most importantly, relationship is key. Will you extend the hand of friendship? Will you offer people the opportunity to become friends? Hands up those of you who live in the inner west. Anyone live in the inner west? Great, great place to live, so I'm told. Uh, I read a report a couple of years ago that said, I think this was right, by 2020 or by 2025, 50% of the dwellings in the inner west will only have one person living in them. Just think about that for a minute. Every second dwelling, every second apartment, every second house will only have one person living in them. I don't know if the study, I haven't read the study, I've just sort of read the conclusion. I don't know if that's people are choosing to, like I read the abstract basically, I didn't read the whole study. So I'm not sure whether or not that means because people are now choosing to live by themselves because they've tried relationships and it's just not working out for them and they go, I think I'd just rather live by myself and maybe have a pet or something like that. Or I don't know whether or not the projection is because of, for example, things like significant family breakup that people will now almost be forced to live by themselves. So it's not by choice, but almost by circumstance. Let's not miss the point in our context. For some who live by themselves over long protracted periods of time, they may continue to have good networks of family, of friends, uh, social clubs, uh, clubs and things in the community or church. But for others, they may grow increasingly lonely. And living by themselves, they might start to feel far more isolated. And over time, they will gradually, ultimately move to the margins of society. Occasionally in the news, we hear just terrible stories of people who have died alone in their house and are not found for weeks, if not months. 
one hand, at that point, we rejoice and are thankful that we've been included in the family of God. And actually, we can make friends and have relationships through church. And But there will be those in our community who will be on the edges, the vulnerable and the marginalised, and loneliness may be a big feature for them. How to best help them? Actually, it's the offer of relationship. It's the offer of spending time with them. They may be exorbitantly wealthy. So it's not as if you're going to make a financial contribution to them. But actually what they want is they want someone to talk to. How else might you be able to help? Well, you might be able to provide some sort of financial means, giving from your surplus. You may choose to provide some form of material provision to them. You may actually be able to refer them to support that is better suited to their needs. Some of the articles I've read on homelessness uh, seem to indicate, and I think this is borne out in the studies, that there is a higher prevalence of mental illness among those who are living homeless than among the general community. I think there's a couple of reasons for this. Uh, Some would say that there's been a move away from institutional care for those with mental illness, a care towards families being now more able to try and care for those with mental illness. But for those who have got broken families, they have no family within which they can be cared for, and so they now end up living homeless on the street. See, unless you have some good training in how to build relationships and work with people with mental illnesses, actually maybe the best thing to do is to refer them to the professionals who are best suited and able to do that. The second issue we need to consider is what means do I have and how to actually make the support happen? Part of this may be that some of your regular giving, as you weigh up how much you're actually able to give from your surplus after meeting your basic daily needs, some of that may actually be given to particular individuals. Your church, for example, might have a fund, a bit of their bank account, or they track it somehow internally, that you can give money into, and that money then gets given to the poor for poor relief. Great, why don't you put some money in that? There may be aid agencies like Anglicare or something like that. That's the one that I'm familiar with. You can give money to them regularly on, a, say, a monthly or a fortnightly or a weekly basis. If you do that, I'm not going to tell you which one to give to. I'm going to say do your due diligence on checking out I think to try and ensure that the the bulk of the funds are actually getting to the people who need it. And you can make a determination about that. I think often many of us have sort of surplus around our house. So the question here is, are you going to eBay it and make money out of it? Or are you going to give it away? Why don't you just give it away? You know, you open your wardrobe and you've just got like, you, you can only wear one set of clothes at a time. Okay. Okay, so, you know, four seasons, four sets of clothes and... And you go, that's a really nice coat. I bought that like years ago. It was like three or four hundred bucks. I wore it like three times and I've got five others in the, in the whatever, I don't know, like whatever your circumstances. I'll eBay it. I'll get 150 bucks for it. I'm saying, why don't you just give it away to someone who actually needs it? Well, I can make 150, yes, but if your needs have already been covered financially, what do you need the money for? And you say, okay, well, I'll sell it and give the money to an agency that looks after the poor, to which I say, great, let your yes be yes. Once you've sold it, give the money away. See, we've got all this other surplus that we just don't need and it's not always just a bank account surplus. It's all of this other stuff in life. I think the other thing to think about carefully is the means by which the provision actually gets to the individual. Uh, On occasion, I've tended to be a bit cautious about giving cash to people as they approach me for money. So I went through a sort of a phase of life where I carried some food cards in my wallet, like the Woolies gift cards, because you can't redeem them for things like alcohol. You can just go and buy food for them. That's not a bad way, instead of just giving out cash. Next time you go to the supermarket, just buy a $30 gift card, stick it in your wallet, and next time you meet someone who says, have you got some money? Say, actually, I don't have cash. 
I mean, I, I rarely have cash anyway, partly because my children often you know, take it. Um, <clears throat> the, the younger ones, anyway. Um, the older ones are more financially independent, um, partly because there's some of them in the room. Um, <laughs> take out the food card. So I'll tell you a story just in the last couple of minutes before I get to the conclusion. I met a lady about four or five years ago down at Broadway Shopping Centre. I was going down to Broadway Shops one afternoon to buy some food for something. I walked past a lady. She was sitting down on the street sort of outside Rebel Sport, if you've been down there before. She said, can you give me some money? I said, actually, I can't. I don't have any. I can't help. Notice I was confusing means with attitude. I literally didn't have any cash in my wallet. So I kept walking. I went into Coles. I bought whatever food I needed to. And I walked past. As I was walking past, I went, oh, I actually should have got some money. I had some cash in my bank account. I could have given it 20 bucks. And so I walked past. She didn't ask me again. Presumably, I'd said no once. Why would I say yes the second time? Anyway, I went back the next week or two, and she was there again. And I'd felt guilty, actually, that I hadn't remembered to get money out and give it back to her. And I take it, in hindsight, that was probably my Christian conscience saying, look, you had means, you know what it means to love people, you should have given her something. So this time when I walked past her, I said, look, do you mind if I stop and have a chat? She was a bit surprised. I don't know if she remembered me from a week before. So I sat down and I had a conversation with her. Anyway, over the next couple of weeks, I uh, would go back and I would see her and I would sit and have a conversation with her and I'd try and work out how to best help her. In the first couple of conversations, she just wanted cash. I said, look, I'm happy to go into Coles with you. I'll let you buy like $40 or $50 worth of food and I'll just pay for it. Because she said, I just need food. I said, well, I'll, you give me a shopping list. I'll go and buy it. I was um, a little sort of sceptical that if I just gave her money that she would actually spend it on food, which is why I wanted to keep building the relationship with her. Uh, over time, it transpired that she was a victim, so she said, and I'd take her at a word of domestic violence. She'd left her husband. Um, she'd been living up on the north coast somewhere and she and her boy had moved down to Sydney, and they were living rough in Wentworth Park under one of the um, rail bridges over there. And uh, at times, uh, as we had the conversation, as much as I would like to offer to buy food, I would give her some cash, because actually, over time, I realised that was the thing she really needed. went back to see her another time, and she said, um, I've been able to find a refuge, a house for women who suffer from domestic violence. She said, but I'm a bit stuck because I need to pay a week's rent in advance, and I just don't have that money. I said, I'd love to write you a cheque for that week's rent. I can't remember how much it was. For me, it, was, it, was, it cost me nothing, literally. I don't know, 100 bucks, 150 bucks. I said, I'll write you a cheque. She said, oh, I'd rather sort of take the cash. I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I mean, I, I know you a little bit, but I don't know you well. Um, I'll write you a cheque and you do with it what you will. And uh, we parted, I think, on quite good terms. I left her my mobile number. I said, look, if you need anything, feel free to ring me or call me. If you want me to try and connect you with the local church, and I'd offered some of the services that Barney's Broadway, because she was spending some time down there offering in terms of food and things like that. Uh, the check was banked, was cashed, and I've not heard from her since, four or five years later. Um, I don't know whether or not, sort of, in the whole scheme of things, I'd sort of been scammed out of several hundred dollars, and it was a really elaborate strategy. And, and But actually, I have to just take people at face value, and I have to live out my Christian convictions and my Christian conscience from what I was able to do in a means that I thought was quite reasonable. Um, I tried to do offer financial assistance, I tried to give from my surplus, and I tried to offer her the support of others. And I will try and do it again, actually, if the opportunity arises and if I have need. I tell you that story not because that's the way you must act all the time, but partly to say it takes time, actually, a number of opportunities doesn't mean you have to be doing it all the time for every person you meet, although if that's your attitude, that's wonderful. 
And I tell you the story partly because it shows that it's possible to live differently. So to conclude, I started by suggesting we should rightly recognise there will be those in society who live on the margins, who are vulnerable. And if our heart is directed after God's heart, then our lives should reflect this in their love and care for them. So three broad points in the last three minutes, so that works nicely. Uh, Firstly, be more neighbourly in the fullest extent of what Jesus means. Ultimately, it means be more other person-centred in thought and in action. Don't just think about yourself all the time. Give greater consideration to all the people round about you, particularly those who are vulnerable and marginalised. Feel and demonstrate greater compassion for them. Ask that God might grow in you his heart after him. And then act out that faith consistently with works of love, compassion and generosity. And work out what that looks like for you in your context at whatever stage of life you're up to. Resist the sense of entitlement, that thing that says in your heart, I deserve this. Be mindful that generally for most of you, your basic daily nets, basic daily needs are more than amply provided, which means often we live with much surplus. I think this neighbourliness will extend to lots of different groups of people. Do not show partiality in this regard. Do not discriminate against people. Do not think less of people. Perhaps give consideration to particular ethnic groups who you don't now associate with. Be intentional in striking up relationships with those sorts of people. And I think particularly in our context, consideration for international students. A group that is often marginalised due to language barriers, misunderstood social conventions, isolation from family and friends. Every third person you meet statistically at the campus is an international student. In some senses, there's many who you could actually build relationships with and consider how to help them. Secondly, the poor are rarely considered in our decision-making matrix. When you make decisions about what to do in life, what to do with your time, what to do with your emotional energy and what to do with your money, just as three broad things, we rarely think about the poor. I'm suggesting that should take a higher priority in each of those three areas of our decision-making and you will have to work out what that looks like for you. The question is, how will you go at stewarding the resources God has given you? What will you need to change in terms of your attitude and actions? What does it look like for us to love the marginalised and the vulnerable? I want to suggest that flowing from our restored relationship with God in Jesus, we will offer and demonstrate to others in our world compassion, mercy, love. We will hold out the message of the gospel but we will also offer and give from how much God has provided for us tangible assistance in meeting people's needs. I think this is what it means to love the marginalised and the vulnerable. Will you pray with me? Father God, we ask please that you might, as we consider this particular issue, help us. We ask please, Father, that you might do a great work in each of us to continue to change and shape us, to make us more like you. And we ask, please, that this will issue forth in a changed action towards others, particularly those who are marginalised and vulnerable. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.